this is the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 2, verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he, that's Christ, was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Uh, this is the reading of God's good and perfect word. All God's people say, Amen. Amen. I'm sure most of us here are familiar with Heinz ketchup, right? Heinz ketchup. We can, we can picture that, that glass red bottle, or maybe it comes in plastic bottles now too, I don't know. Uh, but typically when I think of Heinz ketchup, I think of the, the glass bottle. Uh, but you might not be familiar with their slogan. I know it's changed a little bit over the years, but for a while, their slogan went like this. Uh, the taste that's worth the wait. Do you remember that slogan? The taste that's worth the wait. And they, they had that slogan because, you know, with the Heinz ketchup bottle, it takes forever uh, for the ketchup to come out of it, right? Uh, so the taste that's worth the wait. Uh, one of their older commercials, uh, they had a song playing in the background with the words, Anticip Anticipation is making me wait. Uh, so they, they were all about anticipation. The taste is worth the wait. As a father of three children, 
And I know many of you as moms and dads and, and as grandmas and grandpas, just that anticipation, that joy, that excitement of, of being able to hold in your arms for the very first time uh, the, the baby that's growing in your wife's womb. Right? Just that joy, that, ex- that expectation that's there, and that, that weight was worth it. Uh, just that first time when you're able to hold them and, and see them. <clears throat> Perhaps you remember as a child uh, waiting for Christmas and not being able to sleep because uh, you're so excited about the, the presents under the tree and, and the gifts that your parents got for you. Or as a father now, or as a mother, uh, for me the anticipation as a father is not so much the getting of gifts, but the giving of gifts. And just the joy of seeing your kids' eyes when they open up uh, the present, uh, that's, that's worth the wait. There are lots of things that we anticipate, right? Lots of things that we expect, have an expectation for. Maybe a couple of weeks ago, what we were all anticipating was having a great Thanksgiving meal, right? Or maybe you're anticipating your favorite TV show. Or for myself, I often anticipate reading a new book. Uh, that's always a great, a great joy to me. I anticipate going home after a long day of work, like, like many of you do. Uh, something about just pulling in that driveway and being able to breathe, huh? On a more serious note, something we should all be anticipating is the Lord's return, which could be at any day, any, any moments. In our text, we encounter two individuals, Anna and Simeon, who themselves are full of anticipation and expectation of seeing the Messiah. And you read through this text, and it, it's, it's just a kind of a normal day. Like when you look at verse 21 and 22, and you just see that it's, it's, it's a normal day for Joseph and Mary to travel to the temple for Mary's purification, to, to present Jesus to the Lord. There, there's nothing unusual about all of that. That's everyday stuff. That's common occurrence happening at the temple. Most people wouldn't have given it a second glance. But two people do, right? Simeon and Anna. And these are two remarkably interesting people. And next week I I, I look forward to talking more about them. But what we see here, just to kind of briefly overview it, is Simeon, he sees this baby in verse 28, and it says he, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. He basically pronounces a psalm. And then after that, uh, he gives a prophecy about the child and about Mary. And then with Anna, this prophetess who, who is there every day, worshiping with fasting and prayer, uh, she sees the child and she starts telling everyone about those who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So Anna and Simeon are, are filled with expectation and hope. They see the Christ child and they marvel at it. Uh, they, they, this is all you can do to get them to stop talking about that. Why, why do they do that? Again, it's because they have seen the Messiah. They have seen and they have held, well, at least for Simeon, held in his arms uh, the fulfillment of all their hopes and dreams. And so they can't help but marvel at Jesus. And it's, it's the same with, with Joseph and Mary, because verse 33 says, his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And so their, their hearts are filled with wonder and awe and amazement. And that's, that's where I want to drive this morning and where the next, the next week or so is just this concept, this thought of, I, I believe that God wants every one of us to be marveling at Jesus. 
to be filled with awe and wonder at the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to be uh, just awe and wonder at his work. And I would just ask you that this morning, are you in awe of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is your heart filled with wonder at the person Jesus Christ? Uh, can you be, are you characterized by that? Is it possible you've lost that wonder? That's easy to do, isn't it? Is it possible this morning you've lost that wonder? You've lost that awe? Is it possible you've never had that at all? That maybe you're here this morning uh, wondering, what is all the big deal about Jesus Christ? Maybe you never, ever understood him as your Lord and your Savior. Wherever you are this morning on that spectrum, my invitation to you this morning is let's, let's come to this text and marvel. And have our hearts be filled with awe and wonder at who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And we're just going to have one point this morning. And then, like I said, next Sunday we're going to fill it out some more reasons to marvel. But the reason why you should marvel at the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, and it might be a little bit surprising to you, but is this. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. And so you might have noticed as I read through that text, or maybe you read through it, uh, before you got here on Sunday. That's one of the great things of expository preaching, going verse by verse. You don't have to wonder where your preachers are going to preach from next week. Uh, you can read ahead. Uh, typically, it's just going to be the next few verses, right? So as you've been preparing your heart for worship this morning, maybe you've read through it and you notice the emphasis on the law of Moses and how five times our text talks about the law of Moses. And you say, well, what's What's the big deal about that? What's, what's the significance of that? And I believe it's very significant. And I, I, I hope by the end of this message, you're marveling and you're all in wonder at how Jesus fulfills the law. So Mary and Joseph are not renegades. Uh, they are faithful to the law. They're obedient to the law. And we see that in several ways. Number one, Mary and Joseph obey the law first by having Jesus circumcised when he was eight days old. That's verse 21. It says, At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So we're going to talk about everyone's favorite topic this morning. Circumcision. Right? Isn't that why you came here this morning? Or didn't you wake up just saying, Man, I, I've been waiting for that sermon <laughs> from Pastor Andrew on circumcision. I mean, where's that been? Come on, right? So that's, that's what we're doing. Everyone's favorite topic this morning is circumcision. In the Old Testament, God instructed uh, everyone who is a son of Abraham must be circumcised on the eighth day. So Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 says, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. Then verse 3, On the eighth day of the flesh, on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So that's from the law of Moses. Every male child of Abraham on the eighth day must be circumcised. Why? Because that's the sign and the seal of the Abrahamic covenant. So if you would, turn with me to Genesis 17. <clears throat> Genesis 17. We're going to anchor in here just, just for a minute or two, but I want you to see and begin, begin to understand the significance of circumcision. Keep your finger in Luke 2, 
Uh, but turn to Genesis 17, uh, verses 1 through 14. And I'm going to, to read verses 1 through 8. And as I read verses 1 through 8, look for how God talks about his promise and the different aspects of his promise. So Genesis 17, verse 1 says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant. So this is the Abrahamic covenant, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you, after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. So note in those verses the covenant or the promise of God that's made to Abraham, and not just to Abraham, but to his descendants, yes? Notice several characteristics. In verses 4 and 5, God says that Abraham will be the father of many nations. And notice how he says in verses 4 and 5, I have made you. Now, does Abraham have a son at this point? He doesn't, does he? He's been promised that. But God speaks as if it's already happened. That's how certain his promises are. He speaks as though they're already passed because they will come to pass as far as he is concerned. Also, verse 6, notice that Abraham is told he will be exceedingly, exceedingly fruitful. In fact, he's told that kings will come from him. I'll connect that to another very important biblical covenant, the Davidic covenant. And we begin to see the significance of what is happening here. Because in the Davidic covenant, David, the king David, is promised a son who will reign how long? Forever on the throne. Forever on the throne. Who is that king? It's Jesus. Remember what the angel said to Mary when he told her she would give birth to a child? (coughs) In Luke chapter 1, verses 32 through 33, the angel said to Mary that the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Jesus is that king that's being prophesied here in Genesis 17, verse 6. Remember also, Zechariah, when he finally gets his voice back, uh, he sings that psalm of praise to God, and in Luke chapter 1, he says to God, he blesses God, for God has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So again, here in Genesis 17, we're seeing one of the very first prophecies of Christ to be born, the king, the forever king, who will reign forever on the throne of David. And so I hope already you're beginning to see the significance of why Christ had to be circumcised. Because 
if he wasn't circumcised, he cannot legally be part of the Abrahamic covenant, nor could he be the Davidic king, nor could he fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. He had to be circumcised for those things to happen. Notice in verse 8 also that Abraham and his descendants will possess the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. That has not happened yet. That's yet to come. But best of all, verse 7, we're told that this is an everlasting, unconditional covenant. God saying, no matter what, I'm going to bring this to pass. I'm going to do this and nothing is going to stop this from happening. God makes the covenant. God keeps the covenant. Now pick up in verse 9. It says in verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Note that word, a sign of the covenant. Verse 12, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. Now note verse 14, that any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So again, real quick, a few significant things about circumcision. Number one, all male descendants of Abraham must be circumcised. That's verse 10. Verse 12, as we know, they are to be circumcised on the eighth day after their birth. And verse 14, anyone who refuses circumcision, God says, you're cut off from the covenants. And verse 11, which I asked you to note, it says that circumcision is the sign of the covenant. It was a mark of inclusion into the physical lineage of Abraham, and it was a tremendous privilege. Paul himself will write in Romans chapter 2.25 that circumcision has value. And he'll say in Romans chapter 3, verse 1, that for the Jewish people, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And Paul answers, much in every way. So biblically, uh, circumcision has a tremendous privilege for the people of God. But there's a problem. The problem is the Jewish people took circumcision and made way too big of a deal out of it. What they started to do was they equated circumcision with automatic inclusion into the promise of God. That as long as I've been circumcised, I'm okay. I've inherited the promise of God. And that's a problem. God's not teaching that. Please listen carefully. Circumcision is the sign of inclusion into the lineage of Abraham, the physical lineage of Abraham. Did you catch that? Circumcision is the sign of inclusion into the physical lineage of Abraham. Not all who received physical circumcision inherited the promise of Genesis 17. In fact, most didn't. There was something more 
than physical circumcision required. What was needed was an internal circumcision of the heart. It is significant that Genesis 15 tells us that Abraham was justified by faith because he had faith in the promise of God. That's the spiritual sign. And then in Genesis 17, uh, quite a few years later actually, Abraham receives the physical sign of faith in that promise. So what I'm trying to, to help you to see, and it's very significant, is that physical circumcision was supposed to symbolize a spiritual circumcision of the heart. It was to symbolize a spiritual commitment to the Lord by faith. The Old Testament picks up on this a lot. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 16, says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God you belong the heaven belong the heavens and the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord has set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Now catch this verse. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Or Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, where the Lord says, Moses says, And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possess, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. That's Genesis 17, right? That's all those promises. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And then, of course, Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, where the prophet cries out, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So I hope what you're seeing from those verses is the significance of the fact that circumcision was never just this outward physical sign but it was meant to signify an inward devotion to God. Romans chapter 4, verse 11, Paul brings this out very plainly. In Romans chapter 4, verse 11, Paul writes that uh, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Let me read that again, because I know that Paul, Paul's a mouthful. He, he, he loads a lot into one sentence. So again, Romans 4.11, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. And he received that while he was still uncircumcised. Why? The purpose, again, Romans 4.11 continues to say, the purpose was to make Abraham the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So what came first, faith or circumcision? Faith. Circumcision signified for Abraham his life belonged to God. It's like a wedding ring on your finger. The wedding ring on your finger says, I belong to someone else. And that's what circumcision 
is saying, I belong to God. I am committed to faith-filled obedience to God. Now note Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. And I hope you're writing down these verses and you can kind of look them up and think through them throughout the week. But Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, Paul writes, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, he is obligated to keep the whole law. So remember, God's standard is perfect righteousness. God's standard is 100% perfection. Can anyone keep the entire law? Of course not. It's impossible. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. How many? No one, not one. So scripture is saying, if you are hoping in the fact that you're physically circumcised, that that will save you and make you inherit the promises of God, then you will be greatly disappointed. It's a major issue. And you read much of the New Testament, and it's a thorny issue all throughout the New Testament. The Jewish people were wrongly trusting in circumcision to inherit the promise. And that was never the point of it. Circumcision was meant to be an external manifestation of an inward saving faith that resulted in faith-filled obedience. For me, these verses cinch it. They bring it home. Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29. Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29, the Apostle Paul writes this. Shocking words, quite honestly, to, to the Jewish people. No one is a Jew who was merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. Did you hear what he just said? Circumcision is not outward and physical. You're not a, you're not a Jew just because you've been circumcised physically. But then he says this, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. That is the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. And that's a significant phrase when it says his praise is not from man, but from God. Because if circumcision is merely physical, the physical sign of being physically circumcised, then all praise to you, right? But if it's of the spirit and inward, not of the letter, but again of the spirit and circumcision of the heart, only God can do that. All praise to him. Romans 2, 28 and 29. So come back to Luke chapter 2 for a moment and look at verse 21 again where it says, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. And remember with me from last week what Jesus means. Jesus means the Lord saves. The Lord saves, or Yahweh is salvation. So please, please, please hear this. I think it's very, very significant, the fact that Jesus is formally named Jesus. The baby is formally named Jesus in conjunction with a sign of his circumcision that speaks volumes. I don't know if you ever thought about this too much, but it speaks volumes. It is saying in very, very clear terms, Jesus saves. That his circumcision is not for his own sake. His circumcision is not for his own sake because he's sinless. His circumcision is for our sake. It is for the sake of his sinful people. And what Jesus is doing, even at eight days old as an infant, is he's identifying with his people. And he's showing how he is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And he's showing how he is the fulfillment of the law. It's saying the wait is over. Salvation has come. 
And we should be marveling and wondering at this truth. The tiny baby in Mary's arms is the fulfillment of the ancient promise. He's going to live a life of perfect obedience to God. He's going to be blameless before God the Father on our behalf. Think of it this way. Jesus is physically circumcised under the law. Right? He's physically circumcised under the law to redeem us from the law and that we might be spiritually circumcised by the Spirit in the heart. It's amazing to think about, and I hope it's beginning to fill your heart with awe and wonder. Jesus is born under the law, and remember, anyone who's born under the law is what? Cursed. He is born under the law to redeem you and I from the curse of the law, and that you and I might be spiritually circumcised in the heart by the Spirit. That's what's beginning to happen right here in this verse. So I think it's crucial when you recognize that the moment he's circumcised, he's named salvation. It's in a person, not in the sign. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. I know I've probably already talked more about circumcision than you want to hear the rest of your life, but bear with me just for another another moment. Uh, Colossians chapter 2 verses 9 through 15. And here in this text, we're being warned to watch out for uh, philosophies and empty deceits that they abound. Uh, But picking up in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, the Apostle Paul writes, by inspiration of the Spirit, that in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Now watch verse 11. In Him... Also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Well, how is that possible? (laughs) This way, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debts that stood against us with his legal demands that he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What those verses are saying is that every single one of us in this room needs to be circumcised. Again, I bet you didn't wake up this morning expecting to hear your pastor say that to you, right? What? You'd be circumcised. But you do. Every one of us need to have our hearts circumcised with a circumcision, not by hands, but by the Spirit. We need Jesus to cut the sin out of our lives. We need spiritual circumcision by the Spirit that results in total surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, a life submitted to Him, for Him to do it as He pleases. So let me be even more blunt this morning. Maybe you think I've been blunt enough already. I'm going to get a little more blunt this morning. The Scriptures are making very, very plain that if you are trusting in anything or anyone other than Jesus, you cannot and will not be saved. Only Jesus saves And I seriously doubt that there's someone here this morning who is trusting in their physical circumcision for salvation. But it's not hard to do a little substituting here. 
And if you take that word circumcision and substitute words like baptism or church membership or Lord's Supper or being a good person, and suddenly we've hit the nail on the head. How sad I am when I ask someone if they're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and their response to me is to look at me with shock and say, of course I am. I've been a member of such and such church for 20 years. What does that have to do with salvation? Nothing. Church membership, baptism, the Lord's Supper, sure they have great value, but they have great value only if there has been first an inward circumcision of the hearts. Please let me say it this way and please listen carefully to this. Church membership, baptism, the Lord's Supper, trying to be a good person, those things cannot shield you from the wrath of God. Only the blood of Jesus can shield you from the wrath of God. Those things are false assurances. Jesus and Jesus alone saves. And remember, remember what he said back in Genesis seventeen fourteen to Abraham that if you or your children won't be circumcised, they're to be cut off. That's a pretty powerful word picture. He talks about circumcision. He talks about you being cut off. It's no different with Christ. If you will not be circumcised in the heart, if you will not recognize your, fit, your sin and confess that and throw that upon Christ who alone can save you and redeem you from your sin, you will be cut off. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's Christ and Christ alone. We come to God on His terms and He has said it is by faith, not by works. God does not accept us because we try our best. No, God accepts us when we accept His best, the Lord Jesus Christ. But circumcision isn't the only way how Joseph and Mary obeyed the law. And right now you can breathe a big breath of relief, sigh of relief. He's done talking about circumcision. Let's move forward. Next is the way how Mary and Joseph came to the temple for Mary's purification. That's the second way how we see the law being fulfilled. Mary and Joseph came to the temple for Mary to be purified. So turn back to Luke chapter 2, and we see verse 22. It says, When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So verse 22 talks about the time for Mary's purification according to the law of Moses. So again, Leviticus chapter 12, verses 2 through 4 says this, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male, a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, as at the time of her menstruation she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day of the flesh, on the eighth and on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. And verse 4, Leviticus 12, verse 4. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. So do the math, right? Eighth day, the child is circumcised. 33 days later, uh, the mother is purified. So 40 days later is, is the time for purification of the mother. And notice in our text 
on verse 23, it says this, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now what you might not know is that that's a poor man's offering. That's a poor man's sacrifice. That what the Lord actually required was a lamb. But the Lord is also gracious, and he says if one's not able to afford a lamb, then what they can do is exactly that. They can offer up a pair of birds, either pigeons or turtle doves. For me, preferably be pigeons. I hate pigeons. Let's do away with the pigeons. <laughs> uh, so they, they offer those up. <clears throat> Mary and Joseph, again, were too poor to bring a lamb. That's, that's very, very significant. And it's significant, especially this way. The pair of birds are offered up as a sin offering. They're offered up for atonement. It's a symbolic way to say that sin passes from generation to generation and therefore uh, is requiring a cleansing, an atonement, and a purification. This is why David writes in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. You see, the Bible teaches we are sinners by nature. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. Atonement was necessary for Mary. She was a sinner. But here our hearts are filled with wonder once again. I was blown away by this as I meditated on this throughout the week. Mary and Joseph are too poor to bring a sacrifice of a lamb. So they offer up a pair of birds. But we know something more, right? We know, looking back on this, and our, and our theology and understanding of Christ is this. To whom do those offerings, those turtle doves or pigeons, hopefully pigeons, whatever they were, what do they point to? They point to Christ. Yes? This is a, a, an amazing passage. They point to the spotless Lamb of God. And remember what John the Baptist will say about Christ later in his ministry when he will point to, the, to Jesus and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is sweet irony. Mary is making a sacrifice for her own cleansing while quite possibly holding in her arms the sacrificial lamb, the child whose own blood is the meaning of the sacrifice she is offering. That's amazing. That's amazing to think about. Just like circumcision, this is a picture in miniature of what will take place a few decades later, 33 years later or so, when Jesus will shed his blood on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. It's saying to us, the wait is over. The Lamb is here. The Lamb has come. It is a picture of a Savior. And the third way we see the law fulfilled here is Joseph and Mary present Jesus to the Lord. It says that in verse 22. It says at the end of it, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And the significance of that is you have to think Exodus. Remember Exodus, the Lord's people are in captivity to Egypt, uh, and the Lord's about to break them free, and, and on the, he gives them um, a great list of things he expects them to do and wants them to do uh, as they prepare for that tenth and final plague or miracle uh, when the Lord will strike down the firstborn of the Egyptians. Before that happens, God gives explicit uh, directions to Israel, and part of what he says is an explanation of why. And so in Exodus chapter 13, verse 2, God says to the people of Israel, consecrate to me 
or devote to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. So, so God is saying that the firstborn of man and beast of the Israelites belongs to God. The significance of that is because Israel, if you remember, is God's firstborn. And also the significance of that is, is if you remember in that day and time, the firstborn son was the hope and joy of all the families. It was their best. So God is saying, devote your firstborn son to God. Give me your best. The principle is God owns them. He's purchased them. They must give him their best. So think about that with, with Luke chapter 2. And you have Joseph and Mary coming to God the Father with their son to present him to the Lord, to offer him up to the Lord as his, that he belongs to him. He's being set apart or sanctified in every way imaginable. Again, this is a remarkable passage to think about. God the Father has lovingly given his best. He has given the true Israel to Israel, his firstborn son. He has given his unique, beloved son. And Joseph and Mary are giving him right back to God <laughs> as a picture of their own and their child's devotion to God. This child belongs to God. How much he belongs to God is something they will struggle with as they are parents of this Messiah. And we'll see that struggle when we get to verses 41 through 52. But how much Jesus belongs to the Lord is also dramatically pictured in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus cries out, Take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. So, Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. He was presented to the Lord, and his mother was purified on the 40th day. What's the big deal about all of that? Three points of application. What's the significance? Number one, I hope and I pray that what this has done for you has stirred up for you a deep love for the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament makes up roughly three-quarters of your Bible. That's a lot. How well do you know the Old Testament? How often do you read the Old Testament? Let me come at it this way. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus says that all of the Old Testament points to him. It's all about him. Read the Old Testament and you see me. So let me ask you this. Do you want a deeper love for the Savior? Then read the Old Testament. Do you want to understand your Savior more and have more joy and peace in Him? Read your Old Testament. I've just spent a few minutes trying to show you how circumcision and the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and purification and those things, how they point to Him. That's just a few verses. Think how much more, and, and, and again, I hope as I've done that, your eyes have kind of been open to be like, whoa, that's huge what Christ is doing there. And I hope again that the Lord's using that to stir within you, man, I need to know the Old Testament. I need to be reading that Old Testament. I need to be dwelling and meditating on that Old Testament with eyes for Christ. And again, that's why I really enjoy and appreciate the curriculum that we're using for our children for Sunday School, the Gospel Project, because the whole, the whole point of it is, is to see Christ in the Old Testament. Not just a bunch of stories, how it's all pointing to the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so I hope that, that what has been said this morning has done that. 
I stirred that up within you. There, there's an old saying out there that says, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. You ever hear that before? It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. <clears throat> so if you want to be a whole Christian, and that's W-H-O-L-E, <laughs> not H-O-L-E, but W-H-O-L-E. If you want to be a whole Christian, read and study and delight in the whole entirety of scriptures that God has given to you. By the way, another great place to start with that is come Sunday morning as Pastor Dan goes through Hosea. Uh, it's a great, a great time to study. A second significance of our text is this. Parents, you must seek to raise your children in the obedience of the Lord. That's a fair application from this, yes. Mary and Joseph uh, go out of their, their way, so to speak. They go to the temple and they, they do all that they do in obedience to the law, in, ob- in obedience to the scriptures. And I think Mary and Joseph are a powerful example to us as parents to shepherd our children well. Mary and Joseph are not spiritual renegades, but they are righteous parents who are sensitive and faithful to the Word of God and diligent to present their child to the Lord. As I think about being a parent, most parents are willing to do anything for their new baby and their children, right? There's not much that parents won't do for their children. And even especially for a baby. In fact, long before the baby is born, we're making huge decisions for our kids. We're setting up rooms for them. We're buying clothes for them. Once the baby is born... Parents provide constant care, holding and feeding and burping and changing and all that fun stuff. Good parents give their children everything they need. And what do they need the most? They need the Lord. And do you know whose job it is to teach children the things of the Lord? That's mom and dad. Good parents pray for their children, asking God not just to bless them with good health, but asking God to be gracious and save them. And not just save them, but grow them in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Good parents read the scriptures to their children. Good parents bring their children to church to worship with them. If you have young children, please do not say to your children, where would you like to go to church this morning? Or would you like to go to church this morning? We don't do that with their education. Why would we do that with their spiritual sanctification? As moms and dads, seek out a healthy biblical church. And say to your kids, Saturday night <laughs> or Sunday morning, hey, we're going to church here in the morning. Be ready to go. We love Jesus. We love his people. We love his word. This is important. That's what good parents do. Committed to that. But that's not enough. Good parents must also live out their faith at home, not just at church on Sunday mornings. Parents, how often do your children see you reading God's word? How often do your children hear you praying to God? Do, when, you, when you read God's word and pray, do they see joy in your life as you do so? Because I, I point that out to say, if you're not living out your faith at home, your children will see it, they will know it. 
moms and dads, <clears throat> disciple your children. Because if you don't, the world will. Let me read a quote to you from Puritan John Flavel, uh, written several hundred years ago, but very, very apt for today. He writes to, to parents, If you neglect to instruct your children in the way of holiness, will the devil neglect to instruct them in the way of wickedness? No, of course not. If you will not teach your children to pray, he will teach them to curse, to swear, and to lie. Where the ground is uncultivated, weeds will spring up. That's pretty powerful. Third, what's the significance of all of this? Let's circle right back where we started. Jesus fulfilled the law. In fact, Jesus fulfilled it better than Moses, who gave us the law of Moses. Actually, God gave us the law of Moses, but he's so tied up with it, we call it the law of Moses. But Jesus fulfilled it better than Moses. Why would I say that? Because Moses broke this law. He broke it in lots of ways, but he broke it right in the beginning. Remember, he, he, doesn't, he refuses initially to circumcise his son. And for that, God tries to kill him. You remember that in Exodus? It's not a passage we think about very often. If not for his wife Zipporah intervening, Moses and his son, well, at least Moses, would have been a goner. So Jesus is better than Moses. He obeyed the law from childhood. He obeyed the law from his first breath, and he obeyed it on the eighth day, and he continued to obey it. Thus he could say in Matthew 5.17, Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. What's Jesus saying? He's saying the wait is over. He's saying he's fulfilled the law. That can never be true. You realize that? He can never say, I fulfilled the law, if he wasn't circumcised on the eighth day. And if he wasn't presented to the Lord when, when Mary and Joseph did that. He can never do that. He can never be a teacher of Israel. He can never be a fulfiller of the law. He would be guilty of the heights of, of, of hypocrisy if he himself did not keep the law, if he himself was not circumcised. Jesus can't be the consolation of Israel, the promise keeper, the light of revelation to the Gentiles, the glory of Israel, the redeemer of Jerusalem, if he hasn't kept the law. You see? And of course, I have to mention Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, which says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions of, as sons. It's not just that Jesus is better than Moses, it's that Jesus is the Redeemer. He's the Redeemer, He has kept the law. Do you want to know God? Do you want to have a relationship with God? Did you know that you have to be perfect to do so? You have to be perfect. And that's a problem, right? We're all imperfect. I'm the chief of the imperfect ones here. We're all unrighteous. None of us are good. Our only hope is Jesus who fulfilled the law on our behalf. His obedience to the law was absolutely necessary for your and my salvation. This is why salvation by works is useless and not necessary. Salvation by works is useless because you can never be saved by works, ever. If you had 10,000 lives, you can never be saved by good works. But better than that, it's not even necessary. It's not necessary to, to, to try and earn your salvation. Because Jesus already earned it or merited it for you. That's the significance of him being circumcised. 
He's earning it or meriting it for you. He is your righteousness. There was a missionary working in the Hawaiian Islands. That'd be a nice place to work as a missionary. Joseph Damien, D-A-M-I-A-N. He was preaching to a colony of lepers. Maybe not so nice (laughs) to be ministering to a colony of lepers in Hawaii. He was lovingly and faithfully serving them and pastoring them for years. One day, uh, he was making some tea and he spilt hot water on his foot and realized he didn't feel that. He didn't feel anything. So he started poking his foot with his finger and he couldn't feel it. And Joe realized that morning he too had contracted leprosy. So he went to church that morning and began his sermon, not with the words, my fellow believers, but my fellow lepers. My fellow lepers. He was identifying with them, right? Utterly and completely identifying with them. And what I'm trying to say this morning, however imperfectly, is that at the moment of our Lord's circumcision, when we meet Jesus here in these verses, the God of the Bible, he's identifying with us. He's identifying with you. He's been made in the likeness of sinful flesh. He's fulfilling the law. He's humbling himself to the point of death, even the death on the cross. God was willing to come so low to raise us. Not a God pulling puppet strings, not a God spectating from afar, but one who submitted to bloody circumcision for the fulfillment of the law. As you read these verses, let me ask you, do you hear baby Jesus crying as he sheds the blood of circumcision? That painful cry as an eight-day-old infant in the shedding of blood. And do you see how that foreshadows the cry of the Savior on the cross as he pours out his blood for you? He fulfilled the law for you. He identifies with you to save you from the curse of the law, to redeem you, to call you his son and his daughter. What a Savior. What a Savior. The wait is over. The Messiah has come. Does this not fill your hearts with awe? Are your hearts not starting to marvel and be amazed at this child, this Savior, this King, the Lord Jesus Christ? Amen? Amen. And next week we'll dig more into that. Uh, if the praise team wants to start making their way up. But next, next week, we're going to come right back to this text and keep thinking about ways that we're going to marvel about the Lord Jesus Christ. So I would just encourage you over the next week, take your copies of God's Word, read Luke 2, uh, 21 through 40 a few times this week, and try and make a list of reasons to marvel in the Lord Jesus Christ.